Welcome to Performance Anxiety. This week we featured drummer Gigi Gonaway. Besides having the best laugh in the business, he's had one amazing career. He's played with Aretha Franklin, Whitney Houston, Kenny G, Mariah Carey, and so many others. With so many great studio stories and even a surprise tour with Bruce Springsteen. Give him a follow at Gigi Gonaway. Give us a follow at Performance Annex on Twitter and Instagram. Our merch is at performanceanx.threadless.com. Subscribe, rate, review, and enjoy Gigi Gonaway. Hi, my name is Gigi Gonaway. I play an old band called Rosas Del Rey. I'm very blessed and lucky to endorse DW by Steve Remo and Vic Firth. And I'm very happy to be on Performance Anxiety with my new best friend, Mark. Awesome. Thank you Thank so you, much. Good. Thank you so much for joining me tonight, man. I really appreciate sure, it. Sure, man. Sure. Great, great. Shoot, shoot it at me. No problem. Awesome, awesome. See, so you're a drummer. Yes. You've, you've been drumming for, for a while. You were born. Quite a while, yeah. Yeah. I've been drumming for probably about, oh, like 35 years, probably. Oh, wow. Sad, for sure. Yeah, a long time. Man. I grew up in, uh, in Sacramento, California. And then um, I, I basically just, uh, very funny story how I got my first drum set. We lived in Sacramento, and my parents were divorced. My mom lived in Sacramento. My dad lived in the Bay Area. So I would, I would live in, in Sacramento with my mother. And there was a huge family next door, right? And they were like a really huge, mixed, ethnically mixed family. Okay. And the dad was black who was in the Army, and the, the mom was German. So they were just a really cool blend. They were oh, all my nice. best friends. Yeah, it was really great. So we grew up together and you know did stuff for years and years. And one day my mom said, hey— the Smiths, they were named Smith. She said, they're moving and they're, they're moving pretty quickly. And I'm like, really? And so this was like in the evening. And by the next day they had moved. Oh my gosh. So, yeah. It was, it was traumatic. And I was like, all my best, like there was a huge family, all my best friends. And my mom said, you know what? I got a note uh, on the door that apparently Mr. Smith left you there or something. And I was like, really? And, and we played pool together. We, you know, we played basketball, baseball. So I thought maybe he left me a cool, really cool pool stick or like yeah. a, a glove or something like that. Right. <laughs> and so I, I go in the garage and, and everything's like, everything's empty. No one's there. I open the garage door and he left me his drum set. Wow. And that was, and I kind of played a little bit. And he, I guess he saw me sitting down messing around and he played, I think he played something like maybe, I think he was a piano player or maybe played drums at some point, but he, he had this old, I wish I still had it, man, this old Gretsch drum set. So it was oh, basically, wow. a, yeah, a kick, a kick and, a, and a rack tom and a floor tom and a couple stands. So I eventually, you know, put stuff all together and stuff like that. But that was, I was playing guitar at the time, but that was the main reason that I got started from that drum set. Wow. So Mr. Smith kind of started your career for you. Mr. Smith, Mr. Smith. Exactly. Man. Yeah. I, I never got a chance to thank him, but I, hopefully I'll be in contact with some of his sons and or daughters because that was just a, a pivotal time where, you know, I, I kind of messed around, like I said, but after getting that and having time to spend with it, it was like, it was really, really cool. And I just fell in love with the whole discipline of drumming and learning and reading and the whole thing. That changed your life. Literally changed my life. Like for real. Exactly. That's, exactly. That's yeah. Awesome. So uh, was your family very musical? You said you started yeah. off playing guitar. Yeah. My dad plays like, he plays like clarinet, like, you know, in, in high school, like most people did back in those days. And, yes. and it, no one else was really musical. And, and he was really cool. Um, after I got the drum set, we lived in Sacramento for like a long time. And then I was really, really a pivotal point in my life. I thought, you know, I live, I love living in Sacramento, California is a great place to live, but my dad lived in an area called Oakland, California. Okay. And, and I, and I thought, wow, man. So I went and visited it one time and it was just really cool. So I thought I want to live here. So I actually, you know, moved out of Sacramento, moved in with my dad and we lived in an area called Montclair in Oakland, California. Okay. And there was all these really great schools. And my dad was, was, a, was an attorney. He's not alive now, but he was an attorney. Um, but he was really, he was really supportive in, 
significant things about the arts in our community, like a really supportive guy. So we lived in a really nice house and it was an upstairs and a downstairs. So he basically let me have run of the downstairs and I got to convert the downstairs into like a little drumming studio with a cool stereo and He's like, yeah, man, you know, just if you're going to do it, let's let's go for it. Oh, cool. I mean, he was like really into me playing. And I was really um, back then I was really like into like a lot of jazz fusion. There was a band called Return to Forever and all these really amazing killer, killer jazz fusion bands. I was really into playing jazz. So he'd come downstairs, you know, every couple of weeks and go, "Okay, let's hear a couple songs. You know what I mean? Oh, awesome. (laughs) How old were you at the time? I was probably about, man, I was probably about maybe 15, 16, like right around there. Wow. Yeah. Too young to jazz. get the clubs. But yeah, but I was but I was really into it. And, and he realized, he said, look, if we're going to do this, you got to have a couple of teachers. I'll kind of come back to that in a minute or two. But yeah. he, he was really cool. He really let me figure out what I wanted to do musically. And him being an attorney, he would, you know, he would say the classic dad thing. You, know, you got to have something to fall back on. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm going to fall back on my ass. What are you yeah. talking about? <laughs> So it was a really cool thing. So I got to study. He said, you know, let's, let's find out some guys with lessons that, you know, we're going to figure some stuff out. So I started studying with a guy at the local music store. And he was cool. It was more about rudiments and just kind of playing on a pad. Right. right. And then I went to go see this buddy of mine play um, in a club. And I, or not a club. I, I forgot where he was playing, but he was a very, I, I was very young. So I went to go see this guy play. His name was Rich Fongheiser. And Rich Fongheiser has a younger brother who became a killer drummer later down the track named Denny Fongheiser. He played with Tracy Chapman and just many, many great artists, great drummer. Anyway, Rich Fongheiser was his older brother and I was so in the jazz fusion and stuff and he goes, you know, we sat, he kind of accepted me as a student and we were playing and he goes, you know what, I have another friend of mine that that I study with and kind of play with. His name's David Garibaldi and I go, David Garibaldi and I'm like, hang on, Tower of Power, David Garibaldi, one of the greatest funk drummers in the world. So Rich Fongheiser Rich had been his instructor at some point of his life. So I'm like, oh, my God. So I got way into like syncopated, crazy seven over four or 11 over eight kind of funk. You know, my friends are going like, what's wrong with you? But I was so into it. (laughs) And Rich, he was like this magical dude that we read. We read a bunch of books, but we transposed different pieces from different songs that I liked. And he kind of explained to me sticking and, and, you know, all kind of amazing things. And, And what a blessing because I would have never met him had it not been for this fluke of going to this joint with my buddy of mine. Really incredible. So he was instrumental. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing, man. And he was instrumental for for a long time in my life. And, you know, we studied, I I haven't talked to him for a long time, but like I say, his younger brother, Denny Fongheiser is a badass dude. He's a, he's a fellow DW artist like myself. So once in a while I've I've kind of run into him here and there at NAMM shows or whatever, but Rich Fongheiser is the grandpapa of, of the funk beats. (laughs) Wow. That's yeah, really awesome. Cool. Yeah, really cool, man. So when did you start playing in bands and, and playing out yeah, on your, yeah. So on your it, own? Yeah, yeah, even in Oakland, California, there was a, a bunch of local rock bands. There was a rock band called, um, oh, my fir- the first rock band I played was called Sapphire. Ooh. Sapphire! <laughs> I, you know, I think you're like the fourth person on the show who said their first band was a band called Sapphire. <laughs> that must have been a thing back then, dude. Sapphire, Onyx, Diamond, all that stuff, dude. All the- <laughs> oh, God. So Sapphire, 
Sapphire was like a rock band with this really a great, cool singer and a great guitar player. It's still my friend and this really interesting dude named Bailey Pendergrass, who was the bass player. He was a really interesting dude. He would kind of wear like little little wizard suits and stuff. He was a trippy dude. And I was such a kid. So I'd go to these rehearsals and I'd see these guys jumping around and this little dude in like a wizard suit. I'd be like, this is extremely cool. <laughs> I'm like, I made it. I made it finally. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Somebody's dressing all weird. I, I, I made it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we we played we played a lot of bars in Berkeley, California. I would literally have to sneak in, like you know, young people do, yes. sneak in the kitchen. I'd have to play the show and go right back to the kitchen or go right back to the back dressing room, or whatever. And my dad was like, "Look, you know, there was a buddy of mine named Paul Kalman, and Paul Kalman was like the, he was like the manager of this band, and he was the nicest, one of my dearest friends in the world." My dad would tell him, "Look, you know, he, he is your responsibility." He's got. To, I don't care what happens. I don't care how many encores. He's got to be at the house at twelve o'clock. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to have to drive down there. That was before. <laughs> that was before cell phones. I'm not, yeah. I don't, don't make me drive down there, dude. So, I we'd be having fun. I'd be like, woohoo, and Paul would be like, okay, we got to go. Yeah. I don't want to go. You know, I don't want to go, Paul. <laughs> Get the car. Shut up. Oh my god. So that was that went on for a long time. We played in like a lot of great bands, and then um, you know, years went by for a while. I played around locally for a while. And then I decided to, after a while, um, I think I was probably about 18 or 19, I decided that I wanted to, oh, I don't know, I, I was playing, I, I kind of had my own band at one point. We had this really killer fusion band with uh, okay. four, three of my buddies, and we played in all these really, and we were all really young kids, we played in all these clubs in Berkeley, opening up for, like, we opened up for Alan Hallsworth, we opened oh, up no. for um, uh, another, all kind of great fusion guitar players, and so one day we were opening up a band for a band called The Warriors, Okay, and they were this killer local fusion band, and I remember um, we did our sound check, and this really beautiful woman with dark hair stood there, and she goes, "You know what? My husband plays in the band after, and I want you to meet him because you know you guys should know each other." And I'm like, "Cool, man, cool." So we played, and I noticed this guy way in the back, kind of stand, standing watching us, and very, very cool. So I watched them play, and I was like, "Oh my god, these guys were." There was this really cool drummer dude that had two bass drums and he was just slaying it i mean just like oh, and the bass man. player was like this kind of bigger dude with a big gigantic tall hairdo and i was like oh <laughs> shit, shit these guys are killing it so i'm like oh my god so later on this woman walks back she goes my husband wants to meet you now so i go over and the guy that was playing drums is a legendary amazing drummer named narda michael walden and narda michael walden he played he took Billy Cobham's place in an amazing fusion band called Mahavishnu back oh, in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this guy, I mean, this was like these, he was wow. like, no, and I would see him on record covers, and I'd be like, he had this really kind of funny smile, and I thought, what's up with this dude, man? He was always fascinated. I always thought he was a killer player. Then I realized that he recorded on a lot of Jeff Beck records, Mahavishnu, and all these other records that he had done through his career. Wow. So we're sitting here talking, and I'm going, oh, my God, this guy is the coolest guy ever. And so we're talking, and this other dude walks over with this big, tall dude, and he goes, hey, man, my name is Randy. I go, hi, Randy. Randy Jackson. Oh, wow. He, he, was, he was the bass player. What up, so dog? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so these were all these guys playing in this band that had been my heroes for like my whole, my, I mean, as long as I was playing that kind of music in the Bay Area. Wow. So Narda looked at me and goes, hey, man, um, do you work a job? I go, yeah, I'm a courier and I play in you know, music and whatever. He goes, listen, tomorrow I need you at this location at 10 o'clock in the morning and I'm going to show you my recording studio. I'm like, okay, cool. So I get my little car and I cruise over and I walk in the studio. It was called... Um, 
Oh, how can, oh, the studio is called the Automat in San Francisco, California. Okay. Legendary, yeah. legendary place where people, I mean, Santana, Journey, um, he, everyone in the Bay Area recorded at the studio. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I walk in and he's like, hey, man, I'm glad you're here, you know, whatever, whatever. He goes, well, I'll tell you, I thought about it all and I'm, I'm going to teach you how to make records. And I was like, what? what? And he goes, I'm going to teach, teach you how to make records. And I go, okay, cool. And he was working on a bunch of records of, you know, different artists at that time. And it was fascinating because I was always, I never had, I recorded a little bit, but not a lot to where I really understood every of the whole process. You know, I recorded a bit my own music, but right. not in that manner. So, you know, I would go there every day and I would learn about, you know, how to, you know, play a proper drum track, drum machines, programming clicks, understanding how to program keyboards, understanding how to write, how to arrange. And so I would do, it was like, a wow. camp, right. Oh my God. So, I know it was incredible. So about maybe about maybe about five months later, and I and it was really cool because he had me do stuff. Then he'd play music and go, you know, go record a tambourine part, go record a timbali part, go record a bass drum part, you know, music that he had done. And so one day we were we were doing well, not one day. I mean, a bunch of times we were recording on this stuff that had this really cool kind of sixties backbeat. And I was like, that's really cool. Very, very much, you know, not my era of music, the, the 60s, 70s stacks thing, the R&B thing. I kind of was into different stuff, but I, I appreciated what it was. Right. And so, dude, I was one day I was driving on the freeway and my little BMW 2002 thinking about I'm the coolest guy in the whole world. Oh, yeah. <laughs> those, <laughs> those are cars. Yeah, yeah. Those are the, my son loves those cars. He's like, oh, those 15. are great cars, man. That's so cool. They are, I mean, they had a great motor. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm driving, I'm driving in the car and I hear this beat. I'm like, hang on. And, and so I'm like, what is the deal here? So I kind of, you know, listening more and I'm like, holy moly. So I pull over because I'm, I'm shocked now because I'm going, I think that, and, and, and I'm listening and I'm hearing the, these different little parts. And I'm hearing this little fill on these electronic drums. And I'm like, oh my God, I am actually, that is actually me playing. Now, Narda was playing the main drum track, but I was playing a percussion track. And the first song was Aretha Franklin, Freeway of Love. Wow. So I pulled over and I'm like, oh my God. So I get out my gigantic cell phone that's like about a foot long. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, mom, you won't believe this. And I'm putting up the radio. I, I was so blown away. So from that moment on, I was hooked to recording. I was just like, this is the coolest thing ever that I could do in my life to really understand how to, you know, capture stuff in a really cool way. You know what I mean? That is and so amazing. along with, with Narda, man, we did like, we did like a two, he was so gracious. He let me play percussion. Sometimes I even play drums. I mean, he was, and he was a great drummer, but I played like a lot. And then I played drums on different things that I produced, but we worked with Kenny G, Whitney Houston, Aretha Franklin, oh, James Brown, gosh. Eddie Murphy, uh, Santana. I mean, all, everyone that was reputable back in that time or, or kind of had an upcoming R&B career, we worked on their records. That is amazing. We, now, you, were you on the freeway when you heard Freeway of Love? I was. I had to pull off. Jeez, <laughs> man. Isn't that a trip? That is. And I just remember going, I just remember thinking, how is this? This is such a trip, you know? And then coming back to the Bay Area, in the Bay Area, the Bay Area is like, is like, the, the mecca of, of amazing, amazing talent. I mean, if you just think of it, Santana, Journey, 
um, uh, uh, Huey Lewis, um, you know, like Joe Satriani, all these phenomenal yeah. artists from the Bay Area. And it's, it's, and so I was really able and very lucky to kind of be immersed in all of that where I kind of lived. I mean, I kind of, you know, I'll tell you more stories, you know, just about instruction, but yeah. I was really able to kind of hang and, and be in this really cool area. And, and I, I would go to work every day and I'd hang out with, you know, Narda, with Randy Jackson, with a great guitar player named Corrado Rustici, with an amazing keyboard player named Frank Martin. Oh, I'm sorry. Somebody's calling in here, but I'll, oh. I'll, I'll let this go. Okay, I'll let no it problem. Go. No problem. Let me just uh, let me get rid of that. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, so we would just we would hang out, and all the guys. I was I was the kid back then, so all the guys would kind of just you know try this, do this, go home and work on this, and it was just like the most amazing time of life where we were we were kind of doing new technology as far as programming and different stuff like that, but we were really on the cutting edge of all this phenomenal music like it, every day, dude, you yeah, know, every day. It, it wasn't a, a, a magical time, especially for that area. You know, I mean, uh, it was, it was, I'm sorry, this guy's calling back in. I'm, I'm going to let it go. Yeah. Let me see. If, let me see. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll just let it go. I'll, I'll call him back in a minute. But for that era and for that time, it was, it was incredible just to, to be able to be around that and to understand how that was all working and, and um, and Marin County was like this fascinating, really cool area that people kind of hung out. So it was it was like the most amazing time of life for me musically. It was really cool. So you you actually answered a question I had for you before I, I answered it because I saw on some of your credits yes. that uh, you have session credits for like symbols. Yeah, yeah, even, like, all kind of stuff. Yeah. Like so, I, I'm picturing like like you. I, I've I've heard the stories about like uh, we were talking about Jerry Murata earlier. Yes. Playing with Peter Gabriel and, and Peter wouldn't let him use cymbals on like the first right. couple yeah. of solo yeah. albums. Yeah. So I'm picturing like a cymbal credit, like Jerry Murata playing, not being allowed to, to, to play cymbals. And then you kind of standing off to the side as soon as it's time for cymbal, you're like running in and doing like a drive-by cymbaling. <laughs> I'll do the cymbals now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, kind of what we did. We did. Back then, we did. There was a lot of, there was a lot of, um, we did like a lot of programming. So a lot of drum beats would be programmed, you know, on a drum machine. Okay. And sometimes you, you use a keyboard to program. So my job was, I was, my, my, my kind of niche and the thing that I got really good at was putting either live drums or live instruments, live percussion, live stuff on top of program stuff to make it feel like a human. Okay. Wow. So it became like this. Yeah. So th I'll talk more about that later. So it became like we programmed stuff that had, you know, really cool beats that were going on. But let's say there was a hi-hat part that was not a very natural feeling hi-hat part. Okay. I'd go in and put a live hi-hat part on there. There was no symbols. I put symbols on there. I put shakers. I would put toms wow. if there was a tom fill. So I would go in there and make this drum track like a real guy doing it. That okay. became kind of a thing that I really got kind of good at. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. So that makes a lot more sense than yeah, reading off a yeah. list of credits. It's like symbols. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. Tambourine. I yeah. Mean, I've got tons of them. I know. Then on the Kitty G record, I played like a lot of drums as well. So there's a lot of different things just kind of that went into like that time and that era of playing a lot, you know, and then later down the track, um, two with Mariah, I'll get to Mariah in a minute or two, but the, 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 the main thing about the Mariah thing was, in the very beginning, we were playing with computers, and I did it for 15 years. I did it for a long, long time. Wow. And so we were playing with computers. So it became extremely, extremely important for stuff to be, when you play with machines, for there to be no drift in time. You can't speed up or slow down. Oh, okay, yeah. Because you, you, you know, 
you know, we're all playing, but if you got this beautifully recorded, you know, keyboard part that's that's uh, the keyboard player is not playing because he's playing three other parts, or this beautiful triangle that's got this reverb on it that's in the, the sequence of the computer, you can't speed up or slow down. Right. So I got I got deadly accurate with understanding machines and understanding wow. where time was, which which you know when I do my recordings now. My best friend, I'll grab my drum machine, I'll grab whatever snare drum or drums I want to grab, and I'm out. You know what I'm saying? But yeah. playing with the machine is so, so important because here's the deal. 90% of what you go to see, if you go to see a live concert, there's some sort of computer assist. Oh, wow. Really? If it's with if it's with Keith Urban, if it's with Aerosmith, if it's freaking with Def Leppard, if it's with, you know, Justin Timberlake, there's some kind of, there's some things that, that sometimes songs are being, are played with the sequence because there's, there's a way to really kind of, captivate that sound and mix that sound when you're playing on TV or playing a live concert. You know what I'm saying? Okay. And having the consistency of having that sound. So that's kind of what I specialize in. I specialize in, in doing, in kind of bringing that gigantic record sound to a live performance. And that's what my career has kind of turned into now. Oh, okay. That's yeah. really interesting, man. That's yeah, fa- yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, trip, huh? yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't realize, you know there, there's a lot that goes into live shows, but you know, I don't, oh, God. You don't realize oh, God. that it gets that deep. Oh man, it's deep, man. Like I, I one time we were at, we were doing a show. We were in Washington, um, Washington, uh, Washington Stadium. It was a couple of days after nine eleven, so it was it was not oh, long wow. from now. It was really weird. But there was a huge concert with Al Green, with Aerosmith, with Mariah, with Michael Jackson. This was a huge concert. There was wow. a big benefit for the nine eleven thing shortly after it happened. And I remember we're standing in front of of the of the stage, you know, and and, and the guy says, "Ladies and gentlemen, Aerosmith." And we had seen about five different bands right before them, you know, and it was amazing. And Aerosmith came out, dude, and it was like the heavens opened, and it was like the most gigantic, incredible sound. And I'm like sitting like, like a little girl, like, ah! you know? <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. And so I'm, I'm like, I run, to the, I, run, <laughs> I run to the backstage, and I'm like, oh, my God. And I'm watching, and I'm seeing that there's this huge computer rig but the, all, but the, I can hear that they're all playing. Yeah. But they were so clever about what they did to reinforce the sound that, that we were hearing out in the audience that it was bigger than life. Wow. Now they were all playing and they were killing it, and it wasn't like they're doing stuff that wasn't there. Right. They right. were clever enough to put stuff, you know, keyboard sounds, you know, you know, kind of um, more soundscaping where it just was huge. And maybe there was a kick drum on the one, and he's playing a one and three pattern, but the one was just gigantic. So you're just like, oh my God. So I really got into understanding how you take that live performance and supplement and make it bigger than life in the stadium. Oh, that's, a, that's that a trip? awesome. That is yeah, wild. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I go see, I went to go see uh, a good buddy of mine, this really great uh, country artist named Brett Young. He's a okay. great artist and he's got like all these great number one hits and he came out and it just sounded unbelievable, you know, and, and not because, you know, the guy is like, you know, giving them half the juice, the opening act, <laughs> just because they were very smart in how they programmed their parts. And so you were out in the front and you're just like, good God, this sounds like the record, but better. And there yeah. you go. You know what I'm saying? Wow. And that's, so the smart guys that know how to do it, you, you'll never know. But the one, you know, like you go see a Justin Timberlake show and it's just, it's off the, like Keith Urban. You go see Keith Urban, it's off the chain. You're just like, oh my God, you know? Oh, I'm, yeah, a, I'm yeah. a big, I'm a big fan of new country because new country for me is kind of like what I did back in the day as far as those records. It's almost like it's, it's, it's almost like R&B and pop songs with a little bit of slide and some banjo and you talk about a truck and boom it's country yeah <laughs> right? right yeah exactly drugs but I mean, a the beer grooves. grab a drink yeah exactly but the grooves man the grooves the guys are playing it's really quite 
it's 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 very rhythmic it's very r&b-esque it's really cool so jason aldean keith urban guys like that i freaking love that stuff man. that's it's really awesome. good you know yeah. that I, I i never thought of it you know the new country like that i'll go check it out and see man because some of the stuff is so soulful and it, it's not the it's not that, you know, not that there's anything wrong with the bluegrass, but it's a different thing now. Like some of the main producers, there's a guy named Dan Huff that produces most of the gigantic country artists um, in Nashville. And he's a phenomenal, phenomenal producer. I know, he, I've heard of him. Yeah, he, his, his background, he's more of a jazz guitar guy. Okay. But he figured out to do sessions and he became this big, gigantic session guy, played on millions of records and then went to Nashville and figured out, hey, man, this is, I, I know this music, you know? So that's, it's very cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So now talk, now get into sessions. You, you, you mentioned a few people that, that you've done session work for, and I want to yes. ask you a couple of questions about Of course, of course, yes, of course. Eddie Murphy. Yes. Hey, baby, come here a minute. You about to spend up all my money. No, look, you done messed up my credit cards and everything. Would you look at this? Baby. How much money do you think I had? Well, I, evidently not as much as you think. Well, I used to have lots of money before I met you. Baby, let me tell you something. My bank account is crazy. What? What, what the heck? What, what were the those heck? sessions? Eddie Murphy. I, I, can, I can't imagine any work actually getting done. I mean, <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, what's funny is, um, what's really funny, man, is when, when we were, we were, at the same studio where I worked with Narda, with the friend I was telling you about, we had a rehearsal studio right next door, right? And um, I had this really killer, I'm forgetting the name of the band right now. I can't, I can't believe I'm forgetting it. But I had this killer, killer R&B band with like uh, all these great players. So we used a space next door to rehearse. Okay. We made it into like a rehearsal room. So Narda would, you know, he'd have guys come over that he's producing or artists that he's producing. He'd say, oh, my, my, I got some young guys, some buddies of mine that are playing next door. And, um, and, you know, pe people would walk in. So one day we're rehearsing, man. We're playing, we're playing, you know, some, some of our songs, just killing it, right? Just, oh, man. And, and you know, and we always do that people would walk in and say hi and, or whatever, just come by and see what's going on. We look up and there's freaking Eddie Murphy standing there. And we're like, get out of here! <laughs> <laughs> and so, and he's sitting there grooving and just kind of smiling. And I'm like, oh, this is just bizarre. But it would happen, you know, often with different people, but no, no one like that. And so the next day, I, I remember Narda said that he listened to a track that we had done and we had really, he really, he really dug it. And we want to come and play on something. And of course we did. We just ended up playing. And Eddie Murphy was, he was, he, he's very funny, but in the studio, he was very serious, but he's, he's a really good singer. That's what I, that's what I was wondering. Cause I figured it would be one of two ways. It would either yeah. be him yeah. cracking jokes all the time or yeah. absolutely serious. Nothing. No, man. It was like, he cracked a couple of jokes and kind of, went, <gasps> that kind of thing. We fell out. We, we all died. Exactly. We all died. But then it was like time to business, man. He was serious, man. Wow. He was really serious and he was really cool and he was nice. And I actually saw him when I lived in life for a while. I actually saw him a couple of times and he was like really gracious and cool. And oh, that's awesome. yeah, that was, that was good times. G. That was good times. Like, yeah, man, that was the shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh man crazy yeah crazy that's yeah amazing and that's no, so kenny g kenny g kenny g is a great man uh great artist um i've heard some kenny, interviews with him and i love that guy yeah he's, he's a really so nice. smart he's smart nice genius genius businessman he's a very smart guy 
um, Kenny G was in a band called Jeff Lorber Fusion Band many, many years ago. And he was like the uh, saxophonist in that band. And so one day he decided that he was going to do a, I guess he got signed as a solo artist. And he came to the studio where we worked. And we had another producer that worked there named Preston Glass. And Preston and he got along really, really well. And um, so Narda was still the executive producer and Preston was producing as well. And I remember Narda went out of town. And so he didn't, he wasn't there for the whole Kenny G record. So I got to play a lot more on that record. And Kenny G, to his credit, he grew up in Seattle. That's where he's from. And, and after the Jeff Lorber thing, and he was, a, he was a pretty big star back then as far as a saxophone jazz saxophone guy. Okay. He brought all of his high school childhood friends, and that was his band. Oh, wow. So he said, I'll do this record with you guys, but there has to be two songs that my guys have to record, my band. And I'm like, I thought that was so cool. And, yeah. you know, me and the, the drummer, the bass, we all got along so well. It was really cool. And so after they left, we kind of played a bunch of other songs. That record was called Duotones, and it probably sold 200 million copies. That's with the song Songbird on it, right? Songbird, exactly, did, man. The did South, you play on that? The South, the South Park favorite. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's a song that everybody loves to hate. Exactly. Yeah, I think I, I, I think I played something on there. I know I played on the record. I forget exactly Man. which songs. That was a long time ago. But yeah, but Kitty was so cool and just like, like I remember, like a lot of times when you do something in the studio, sometimes you, you know, you'll do something ten freaking times. You'll do a solo ten times. You know. Yeah, yeah. He, I remember, he was really articulate about what he wanted to do, and usually the solos that we that we selected that were the you know strongest solos were usually the first take because oh, wow. he was so he was so clear that what came out then was nothing got in the way. Like he didn't get too much in his head and right. he just was a great player. Really nice dude. Very funny. Um, just a really great guy. That song just keeps coming back. Cause I, Oh man, you know, it'll, it'll never go away, man. It'll I, never go away. I saw an episode. Have you, have you ever watched the show psych? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It yeah. shows up on an episode of psych. I was just watching the other oh, night. That's funny, it's, man. That's got, funny. They end the show. They've got the guy, a guy at gunpoint and all of a sudden, on the radio, <laughs> and they got this guy at gunpoint, and they're just grooving while the guys at gunpoint. Oh, that's funny, oh. man. That's funny. That's really funny. I love that. That's, that's one of my killer. favorite scenes out of that whole series. It oh, that's awesome, me. man. Yeah, Kitty's just, I can't talk more about that guy. He's a great dude, man. He's, there was a lot of really great guys back in that time where, you know, I, there was a lot of really good friends in my life. And so it just, Kitty was always a, a really good dude. Yeah. So you, you basically played on a lot of the albums that shaped the sound of the 80s and the 90s. I'm, I'm looking which, at my, uh, my list. Which right. is funny. Yeah, you know, I, someone said that to me in Japan one time, and, and it's true. Like, all those records that we did, man, those, we really, and some, you know, the Mariah, I played on, on some Mariah, I, you know, I played on Unplugged Mariah. And that, right, that's, right. That is just like one of the ones, people, I'll go anywhere in the world and people will be like, oh my God, you know, that was one of the records that really helped me in my life. And, oh, yeah. It was really cool. The Mariah days were amazing. The Mariah Carey days were um that was the most amazing time of music um, and just me learning and being a kid and, and really understanding where I was and understanding what I was bringing to the earth. And it was just a phenomenal 
special time, man. And we had the most. I, I got to travel the world with my best friends for for fifteen years. That's it's incredible. That's amazing. So how how yeah. did you get the gig with Mariah? How did that all start? I um, well, I remember working on the record where she was coming to the studio, and I was playing uh, a top forty gig all the time, and um, in this really fun bar. And I remember the, this guy named Walter Afanasiev, who I mentioned a minute ago. He was producing, he was producing or co-producing the record with Narda. And um, he said, "I'm going to bring people down and come check you out." And I guess he—I I don't remember her being there. I, it's kind of a bit foggy, but basically, she she said, "I'm going to do a show um, for supporting her first single," but she didn't have a band. Okay. So you know, Walter knew me, and and all these other guys, Randy. Uh, a guitar player, a percussionist, a really great producer, keyboard player named Ren Kleiss, another great keyboard player named Dan Shea, who's a producer as well. And we put together this really killer band, man. And I'm, you know, we did all this rehearsing. And I'm like, okay, so where are we playing? And everybody's like, we're going to go to LA and just do a show real quick. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, what are we doing? Yeah, I know. I'm like, the kid, what are we doing, you guys? So, <laughs> finally, I think a day before, it's like that. They're like, yeah, don't, you know, don't trip out, but we're going to go do our city hall. And I'm like, get out of here. We're going to go do all shit. Are you serious? Wow. So that was the one of, that was the first show that I did with Mariah was on our studio. Oh, my God. Isn't that crazy? Crazy, crazy. It was so much fun. And we just had – it was really cool. And Arsenio was cool. And um, it was just an amazing time. I remember at one point um, I, I played and I really had a great time. And there was a really great drummer on there named Chuck. I forget the drummer's name, but he was a really great drummer. I guess there was something going on where he couldn't make some of the shows. So I had played that show about a week prior to that. And a week later, they called me and said, would you be available to do the show? And I'm like, get out of here to do your show. Of course I would, right? Yeah. So I go down and I rehearse for two days. And, and like I think the third day, he, he, I was supposed to record the show. And he came back. <laughs> I was like, ah, <laughs> go away, dude. But it was just, and that was like my introduction to, to doing TV shows. And then later on, we did Letterman. I think I've done Letterman five times. I've done... Every TV show I've done basically with, with her, we, we did all, we did SNL, I think five times or six times with SNL. And I don't know if you, you ever, see, you ever see that classic uh, Saturday Night Live with Chris Farley and, um, and uh, where they do the Chippendales. Oh yeah. With Patrick Swayze. So we're on that show. Oh, is that the one? I was standing about five feet when they were doing that skit, and I was I was crying, dude. I was oh crying. <laughs> it was unbelievable. That's so we, we, classic. Yeah, that, that's a classic one. I, I swear to God. So I'm standing there, and I look over to my left, and there's Madonna standing there. And I look over to my right, and there's like you know Dana Carvey and and, and all the cats, man. You know all the dudes, wow. and I'm just like, this is the, and this is maybe like maybe oh this is maybe three or four months into the tour. So I was just like every day was just like my. God, man, it was just, I actually, um, about maybe three months ago, I did a, a show for, I, I did an interview for a, a TV show called Reels, R-E-E-L-Z. It's like a, I think, I don't know if it's an LA local show or, I think it's national, but I filmed it in LA, but we talked all about that and they showed me a bunch of footage that I hadn't seen forever from the Unplugged show and from some SNLs oh, and it was just, it was really just phenomenal, man. It was really cool. So you, you've done some touring at this point and, yeah. and then you're doing, uh, a lot of TV appearances, and then you, yes. get, you get the unplugged gig. How is, is the prep different for doing a, a TV appearance and for a tour? Uh, yes, uh, a tour. A tour. I tell my friends we rehearsed a two and a half show, two and a half hour show. We rehearsed that for probably two months. Okay. Sometimes, maybe even longer than that. I'm probably forgetting it, but sometimes there'd be a week where I would rehearse with the lighting director, the dancers, and drums. I'd rehearse a week like that. So we rehearsed every aspect of the show. 
with choreographers and everything to where it was just the most amazing two and a half hours. And then we take a week off and everybody be like, okay, let's now, now we'll make it our show. Now let's make it our vibe and let's have our little solo sections and whatever. But it was a really, a, a very strict hardcore process of making sure everything was like perfect not to be funny and we had computer stuff we had you know computer stuff that was playing with the lights being synced with you know she had this huge reveal where she came out of the center of the stage so it was, it was a lot of stuff to rehearse but it was a huge huge tour i mean it was 80 people on the freaking tour 80 people Jeez. we'd go into we'd go into a, a city we'd take over a hotel you know That's, oh my gosh that, yeah i yeah. guess that makes sense yeah it was phenomenal yeah we did we did um we did like some of the like i we played in um I always tell people this quick story. Um, we, we were in Japan, right? So we go to Japan, we go to Tokyo, and we get on our tour bus, and, we're, and everybody's like, we're going to go from the airport and go right to our sound check. So we get in our tour buses, we're cruising through Tokyo. As we're getting closer to this place we're playing called the Tokyo Dome, oh, I'm God. seeing on the street, people are like on the street, and this is for our, we're going to do our sound check the first day we arrived in Tokyo. How they knew we were there, I don't know. So by the time we got close to the stadium, there probably was 10,000 people just kind of hanging out because we we're going to do a sound check. So we drive our tour bus into this Tokyo Dome, right? You drive into this big bay and you and you the, the doors close and this big elevator door comes down and you go down a half a mile. You're going down, you're in an elevator going down a half a mile. Oh my you God. come out inside this, right? You come out in the Tokyo Dome, you drive out and you see this gigantic stadium. It holds 100,000 people inside the stadium and i'm just like you have got to be kidding and i had the greatest drum tech in the world back then his name was paul jameson uh he actually invented the pearl rack with with jeff piccaro really great drum tech we have a smart guy so he was my drum tech right so i'm like good god so he goes yeah we got everything together for you g i'm like oh shit so i sit down right i put my little ears on i hit my snare drum and it's like it was like the, the drum, the drum of the gods, dude. It was unbelievable. It was like Godzilla came down and descended on Tokyo. It, it's, it, it's a God, I had Godzilla's drum set. Exactly, dude. It was unbelievable. So we do our sound check and, you know, a couple days pass. We have our first show. So, you know, we come out, ladies and gentlemen, and the crowd goes freaking crazy to the point where we're standing there for about seven minutes we cannot, and we have inner monitors on, very yeah. you know, very early ones, right back in the day. I couldn't hear anything but the crowd. Wow! So I'm like, so I'm looking, I'm looking at the guy that starts to, you know, we start a, a sequence because that you know does all kind of video and all kind, and we're all playing, and but I got to give the guy the cue to start the show. Right. So I'm looking at him and I'm like, I can't hear anything that you're saying. I, I, oh, I got a bad connection here now. Sorry. Okay. So I'm like, I cannot hear anything going on. So we're standing there, and she's standing there. For like seven minutes, man. And then the crowd quiets down and we commence to play a two and a half hour show. And at the end, it was so deafening that, that I kept my ears on. And I just remember going in the room going, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. God, I can only imagine. A hundred thousand people singing every line. And between songs, you know, we would do a song and they'd go crazy. Then it was like dead silence. <laughs> because Japanese people feel like between the songs they want to be quiet for respectful, so it's like right, just right. deafening, deafening hundred thousand people to to where you can hear like a little pinfall. It was the craziest thing in the whole world. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh amazing, my yeah, God. yeah. I think I think we played like four nights in a row and they were all sold out. So it was just like one of the biggest shows I have ever. Like wow. one of the biggest ones. Of, that we've done a bunch more in different countries that were pretty a lot more people, but just in that concentrated area is just like my God, man! It was unbelievable. It was really incredible. So, do you have to prep differently when you do a, a TV show because it's just a, a 
real yeah, quick yeah, in and TV, out. A, yeah, TV show is a different a different animal because you have to really you're, you're not going to play the same arrangement usually because you have a, a lot of time period right. usually on, on TV shows back then. I think you have between like like four, maybe three and a half, four and a half minutes, maybe at the most. So you have to concisely get your song in there, and maybe your song may be you know actually not, not three or four. You have about three minutes. So if you had a four minute song or a three and a half minute song, you'd have to do an arrangement to where you could get your song you know the whole idea of the of the song conveyed in that time period. Oh, so wow. it was a different arrangement than how you do the song. You know what I mean? Man, that's yeah, that's got to be yeah. tough. How far in advance do you get uh, notice that they want somebody oh, wants you on a TV show and you have to do that? Sometimes you'll do one, then somebody will call you the next day or call you two days later, so you never know. Wow. Like when they're doing, when artists are doing big promos like that, you're, you're just making the press know that you're available for any and all, you know, situations like that. Now, a show like SNL, you plan that far in advance, but a show like, you know, Letterman or, or other, we did uh, we did Ellen a couple times, we did Oprah, those shows, when she sits down and has a conversation or, or, or an interview, you kind of get more planning of those. But other shows, you find out, you know, maybe five days, a week at the most. Wow. So you have to, and that seemed like a long time, but not if you're on tour and you have to prep a song, you have to figure out the arrangement and figure out the backgrounds, figure out everything. It's, it's a lot of work for that one song, but it always worked out pretty well. Now, yeah. how, how long in advance did you guys know you were going to be doing the MTV Unplugged show? I think we actually rehearsed for that. We rehearsed for that. I think we probably had a good, we probably had a good month, maybe even longer than that. So we were able, like the whole band lived in California and that show was all done in New York. So we all had to travel there, you know, kind of rearrange our lives. We rehearsed for a good week or two because that was a pretty long show and it was very unique because it was unplugged. It was, there was no, uh, there was no sequences or nothing electric per se. It was yeah. more acoustic. So it was a bit more of a prep for that, just different arrangements and different configurations. But yeah, it was really cool, man. And I remember I got a, I got this really beautiful, I'm a GW artist and I got a really beautiful snare drum from, from John Good, the owner. And I played that on that show and it just sounded so beautiful, man. I was so happy That's with the win because it was all, it was all live mics and, you know, studio mics and audience mics. And so, you know, it was very important how everything sounded acoustically as opposed to coming through a huge PA. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it looked like an enormous production because, I mean, um, you've got, you know, the the, the basic band there. Then you've got like a string section, backup singers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Grand piano. Yeah, Yeah, it was amazing. And the guy, one of the people, so one one of the keyboard players was Walter. And that was one of the guys. Another guy, his name was David Cole, and he used to be in a band called CNC Music Factory. Oh, yeah. Then, remember that band from a long yes. time ago? That was my and high school just, years, man. That's, of course, man, exactly. And he was this incredible gospel keyboard player, and he was really? the funniest freaking guy. So if you uh, at the show, I'm like not even looking at him because every time I looked at him, he'd crack a joke, and we were buddies. <laughs> and he was just really cool, man. And uh, he, uh, he passed away, you know, rest in peace, brother. But he was a great, great keyboardist, and that was a very special show for me for sure. That show – now, I always wondered about this looking and looking back on cl- at clips preparing for this. Yes, yes. The entire audience seems to be wearing black shirts. Did they, did they like send out a memo or did they hand them out when they came in? How did that you know work what, out? I, you know, that's funny. I never noticed that. I don't remember. I know that we had to wear black. I don't, you know what? There probably was a memo because back then that was. I think that was. I think Nirvana did an unplug and then we did an unplug. So that was way back in the day when they were trying to figure everything all out. And we filmed it in this really weird round studio in, in Wistoria, New York. Oh, wow. So that, there could have been a memo for everyone to wear darker clothing that you know darker clothing 
that makes sense for what they were trying to capture. So I would say you're probably 100 percent right. I bet a memo was sent out because they wanted to make it. They wanted to make it like this darker in a living room kind of vibe. So I, so you know, whites or, or lighter colors don't always translate great across the camera. So I bet there was a memo that if you want to come to the shoot, you probably got to wear darker clothing. Yeah, and you know, at that point, they don't want to detract from you guys on the stage. Exactly. So. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I bet there was some memo like that. I'm sure there was, but. Yeah, well, that was a phenomenal show for sure. It was really fun. I threw out to some friends of mine and on social yeah. media that I was going to have you on the show, and I said, "Hey, anybody, oh, got, anybody got any questions?" And to to us, every, to a person, I got one question, and that okay. is the only question anybody asked. They cool. wanted to know if you ever saw Mariah Carey naked. <laughs> Well, my lawyer and my wife will not let me disclose that, so I have no comment. There you go. Let's, All right, but I, that person, I, I can answer that. I can answer that question for a hundred grand. That'll be the settlement, I'm sure. Okay, perfect. perfect. I, I will throw that out uh, as the answer, and if anybody wants to pony that up, there you go. Exactly. Then we got. I love it. it. I love it. Perfect. Now, you, see, you've done some sessions with huge names like Aretha, yes. George Michael, George Benson. Yes. How much pressure is there? When you when they call you in for a session like that, how much how much time do you get to prep and, and do they just send you music? Do they give you music? Say this is what we're playing. Do you have any input on, on making it sound like you? How does well, that during work? the whole during the whole time we were during that whole time of working at Narda in the Bay Area, we would just we would he would get different records to produce. And those are the records that he got contracted to produce. So me being an in-house percussionist drummer. Those were the, that was what was thrown at me. Here's, we're doing two songs for this today. We're doing this today. So there was not like I'd come into work and not know what the heck I'd be doing. No idea. Wow. So, so there was the prep Jeez. time was, you know, whenever you had time to practice. And I had a really cool little drum set in the back before I got all my endorsements and all that kind of stuff. I, just, <laughs> I, always, I always played. I was, I was always a player. So I was always kind of prepping and trying to figure out how to be a better player and just making sure that, you know, I, I was a really good reader. I think I read. In the whole 10 years of working there, I probably read one chart. <laughs> so that really didn't help very much, you know. So it was more like just really being ready for anything that was thrown at you musically. If it was going to be something funky, something Latin-y, something uh, like a big ballad in 6-8, whatever it may be, you have to just kind of be prepared to kind of jump in there and, and knock it out. Did any of the artists you worked with ever, were you ever intimidated by who they were before the hand? Everyone, sure. Ah. I mean, sitting there and looking at George Benson, you know, telling stories about how he invented jazz. That's a little intimidating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or Randy Jackson, who's one of the greatest bass players. People don't realize all the records that Randy Jackson has done. People don't realize he's a prolific, prolific bass player and producer. Yeah. And so me sitting there next to him, I was never worried about doing live shows or sessions, but I was always worried about making sure that what I was playing was really adding to the beauty of the composition and, and really adding something musically where he would take note and it would, and it would be a special performance for that artist where they'd listen back and go, this this is my song like it's never been before, which which I'm very lucky. I produce and play, do a lot of sessions where I live in Arizona. And um, I'm actually working with current artists in a new band right now where people are just like, I've never had my music, you know, be this way before. And I think that's wow. just me being able to learn from Nardo, learn from, because he was the main guy that really took time to teach me and learn from Walter and Randy and all the guys that, that I was able to kind of be around Preston. Uh, my best friend, Vernon Black, a really great guitar player, another good buddy of mine named Biambu. These are all great players that I just got to sit there and go, let me see how this guy does what he does and just you know take from there. Also, I was really lucky and blessed to tour with um, Clarence Clemens, the big man from Pooch yeah. Pinstein's band.
Yeah, how, how did that come about? Oh, man, I was, I, we were doing his record, and uh, we were working on his record, and he was a really nice guy, and he goes, hey, man, you know, I'm going to put together a little band and maybe do a little tour. I'm like, dude, I'm down. So I, I kind of knew a couple guys, and I was playing with these really cool brothers named the Russell Brothers. They were kind of like more of a Texas shuffle blues band. Okay. But the bass player was this killer bass player named Brad Russell, and the guitar player was Kevin, and there was this great bass player named Polo, and a buddy of mine named Mike Monty playing keyboards, and, we, and I thought this would be a really good band. I told Clarence, and we went out and did a couple shows. Oh, and he goes, you know what? We're going to go to Ventura, California, and do a really great show. So we did a show in Ventura, and I was like, man, this is a trip. This is a lot of people. Because we were playing some kind of bluesy stuff, kind of kind of R&B stuff, but it was really okay. good. And Clarence was a great saxophone player. So we're, I thought, these people, this is a lot of people coming to this kind of music. It was fascinating. And he goes, we're going to go do a show in New Jersey, um, and it's going to be a you know really great show. So we, we go to New Jersey, and I remember it took a couple days for everybody to get there, and I was really tired and and um, I think we had a day between the rest and we had to do the show. So we rested in this really weird, weird hotel. And uh, we went to the, this place in, in New Jersey. And um, we walked into this bar. And the name of the bar is escaping me right now for some reason. I, I don't know why. Um, but we go into this bar. And I'm like, we're going to play in this freaking bar, really? So I'm like, hey, uh, you know, we're doing this. Our, tour, you know, our bus is outside. I'm like, it's a trip. And um, so we go to this bar, man, and I'm sorry that I'm forgetting the name of the bar. You can probably look it up and see. But basically, it was the first bar that he played with Bruce Springsteen. Oh, wow. And uh, so we're playing, and we did our sound check. And I'm looking outside, and there's a freaking line out the door. And I'm like, what the, what's going on? And one of these security guys are like, well, yeah, he'll be here a little bit later. I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, yep, he'll be here a little bit later. And, uh, oh, you're not you know, talking about this, the pony, are you? The stone pony? This, uh, thank you so much, the stone pony. Yeah. Oh, sorry. To, thank you. To, thank you. Oh, I used to go there all the time when I lived in New Jersey. Oh, God, that's amazing. So, you know, you know that crazy, creepy hotel? Yes. The hotel that, with the, that, with that, the weird what, face on it? That's where we stayed. Oh. Exactly. Oh, my God. Dude. <laughs> so, dude, so everyone's talking about he's, gonna, he's here. So we start playing one of the Clarence songs, dude. The freaking door opens. There's Bruce Springsteen. Oh, my God. <laughs> no way. <laughs> he, jumped, he jumps on stage with his telly, and we're playing. And he goes, all right, you guys, let's, let's do some Cadillac Ranch. We go into Cadillac Ranch. The place freaking goes off. People are going wow. crazy. I'm like, I'm like, hang on. And, and I, I saw Bruce before. I was clear. I was kind of hanging out. And you know, I, I saw him. I never really met him, but I saw him on stage. And I'm like, this guy's prolific. But seeing him work a crowd then he basically stayed on stage with us for like the whole show oh we get God. off the freaking stage we go to this creepy hotel we're sitting around talking <laughs> <laughs> and he goes he goes he's very country he's like hey gee like yeah man he goes man you ride bikes i go i always wanted to ride a bike he goes come on with me son so we go downstairs <laughs> to the creepy hotel <laughs> and downstairs are two brand new little harley uh, 1200s, little oh, sportsters. Yeah. Oh, wow. And, and so he goes, he goes, do you ride? I go, I ride a little bit, but I'm not really good. He goes, look, if you wreck it, you bought it and uh, <laughs> gives me the keys. And he, and he goes, don't fall. Don't we need you to do the show. Oh, so I'm downstairs God. putting around this, this freaking this freaking parking lot on Bruce Springsteen for those sports. <laughs> <laughs> oh so then we go, then, then for basically about two weeks, he stays on the tour with us. We're on the bus with him, Whoa. hanging out, telling us stories. Laughing, I'm like, this is the and, and what was what was the most beautiful, coolest thing was he and Clarence were like the most best friends in the freaking world. Uh -huh. They would see each other, and in the most non-gay way, they would kiss each other, you know, on the cheek, yeah, on whatever. But I mean, just because they were like brothers that loved each other, man. They were oh, like yeah. that loved each other, you know. It was just it was so great to see. And then we did a bunch of shows, and 
you know, me and Clarence were really cool. And then he got very ill, and I didn't get a chance to see him before he, he died. It was really a bummer for me. Oh, but I remember I was in I was in L.A. at this really nice clothing store, and I'm in there with you know some girl that at the time. So I hear this, "Hey, Gene!" I'm like, "Oh, who the hell is this? Who knows me here?" <laughs> I'm like, oh my god! And somebody's yelling, and I'm seeing people run around, and I'm seeing like photographers, and it was freaking Bruce. Oh, he goes, goes, man, I think about you all the time, and I'm like, you have got to be kidding me, dude! The nicest, sweetest dude in the world, man. I mean, he's he's a prince. I mean, people go crazy over him, and he's justifiably so. Oh yeah, great guy. Great guy, great guy. I, I was lucky enough to see him live one time, and it wasn't at the Stone Pony. It was uh, the uh, he had dissolved the E Street bands, and he was with that other the band with Shane Fontaine on guitar. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. I, we got to see I saw him at, at um, well, it used to be called Brendan Burn Arena. It's it the the oh yeah yeah, yeah 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 yes yes. Wow. And I'll tell you what, man. First, that place was packed, which yeah, you know it's going to sure. be in New Jersey. Yeah. Or anywhere for that matter. But yeah. he was in, in an arena that size. He was still able to work the crowd and, yes, and make it. It's feel. amazing, isn't it? Yeah. It's incredible how he, he just, it's like it's absolutely, he just, he just, he just, he acts, he's himself and people just lose their mind because it's so genuine. That's truly how he is. He's yeah. just a really nice, talented, sweet dude. And, and it so, comes across incredibly. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. No matter the size of the, no matter what size the venue is, because he's like, telling stories. Yeah, that's a good point. Exactly. That's a very good point. Yeah, for sure, dude. Well, yeah, that's awesome. You answered one of my questions I was going to ask. You. I was, it, if you ever got bored with session work, but you, it sounds like that's that no, big. No, man. I, still, I, um, yeah, I, I, I live in Arizona, like I said, and there's a few artists that I work with. Um, there's a really great local guy uh, named Walt Richardson, who's a local legend. He's been doing stuff here forever. So he's a reggae artist. So I'm kind of producing oh, cool. his reggae his reggae record. And we're just cutting, we're going to finish it sooner or later, I hope. But it's really, really great reggae. Then I have a new band that I'm working with that I'm actually in called Blaine Long and Roses Del Rey, which is R-O-S-A-S Day, D-E-R-E-Y, Roses Del Rey. Okay. Um, and it's kind of, it's really cool. It's kind of, it's very Americana. It's almost country. It's some of it's really funky. It's a, and the guy is a, he was on the voice. He did very well on the voice. Blaine Long did. Okay. So um, it's a really great band. I'm really excited about that. We've been recording tons. We have a bunch of new stuff coming out really soon. But yeah, have people kind of look around for that and go to our site and, you know, go to Facebook, Instagram, all that good stuff. And we'll definitely stay in contact. But it's a phenomenal band that I'm really excited about. Absolutely. I'm actually going to embark on uh, I'm going to go do a clinic tour in another country. I'll talk to you more about that later when it gets all solidified. But yeah. it's going to be a, a country of the Orient. And I'm going to go over there for DW and my other companies. And I just designed a new stick. And so everyone's kind of going crazy over that. So oh, everything's cool. good. Everything's that, good. Everything's Is that the one I saw that you did the Instagram post for? Yes, it is, sir. Yes, with my little baby's face on there. Yes, yes indeed. <laughs> that is. She's like, Papa, awesome. I hate that stick. No, yeah, you love that stick. Come on, <laughs> that stick's paying for your college. Exactly. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, man. So it's all good, man. It's all good. That is fantastic, man. Look, I I have kept you for uh, quite a while here, and I I really do yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, it's fun though. This so is fun, time. man. This uh, is fun. It's cool. I have one more question for you before uh, before I let you go, and unless you want to keep throwing out some stories to me, I got the rest of the night. So, well, you know what, hey man, you know, you know, what I was thinking is I, I like this format a lot. I just got I got stuff to do at six right now. Yeah, but I don't yeah. mind doing. If you want to, if you want to call back and get some more information another day, I'm digging it. This is really fun. Let's There's other it. aspects of things to talk about, and I think that you know, I, like I said, I, I instruct a lot now. I feel like I want to help guys get better, and I'd love to talk about that a bit more. So maybe we'll, Absolutely. you know, let's maybe let's we let's we circle around. I go I go to Alaska for some shows. 
Uh, I leave on Friday and go to Alaska, and I come back on Tuesday or Wednesday. Okay. So next week after Wednesday is cool, and I like this. You're a comfortable guy to talk to. And oh, thanks, let's man. just do more of it, man. We'll figure it all out. Absolutely. I have a whole nother career that I do besides drumming, which is interesting as well. Oh, uh, cool. I work in the less than lethal weapons department. Um, world of, of, of law enforcement oh, as well. Wow. So it's really interesting. So I kind of, I work with a company that's a very interesting company that, you know, enables young officers to have another outlet beside using their deadly force. That's not a taser. It's a really cool thing. So that's fun to talk about as well. And just, you know, how it kind of can help the world. And, you know, and, and, and also just talking about music and just how music is, it's very cliche to say, but music just goes across all the lines, dude. It's like, I don't know what you're into. You don't know what I'm into, but right. we can talk it for an hour and it's cool. It's like we, it's, it's a comfortable place. It don't matter if you're Republican, Democrat, black, white, it don't matter. It's like, that's the unifying aspect. And I love to talk about that more. That's exactly what I wanted this show to be. Just in a, kind of an escape from everything. And you just learn yeah. about new, new people, maybe music that artists that you don't really know about. So precisely, uh, precisely. Yeah, for sure. So, so, Listen, I invite, let's definitely circle back around. Let me ask you two things real quick. Of course. Where, sure. where can people find you on social media if, if, if they want to find out what you're doing specifically? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, Instagram is Gigi Gonaway. Uh, that's my handle on Instagram. Um, uh, face, Facebook is uh, Gigi Gonaway, Facebook. Uh, my band, like I said, is Rosas Del Rey. Uh, R-E-Y is his last spelling. Uh, I'm on Wikipedia. People can go there and check out all the stuff I've done. I endorsed uh, DW, um, Vic Firth, and Remo, and Pisces. Uh, so I kind of that, I'm on their sites as all that stuff as well. I try to post a new kind of I try to post little fresh different beats like every couple of few days or every couple of weeks or whatever, awesome. just to kind of give people a different you know way of looking at stuff and playing. And I instruct. I, uh, I do stuff online. I do stuff in person. I'm available for sessions. Like I said, all that kind of good stuff and anything that people may need musically, give me a hit up. Awesome. Well, you got both of the questions there before me even asking them. Beautiful. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.